why would McDonald's need a website? It made no sense to me. I'm like, but in reality, that was the signal that the internet and .com was here forever. And so when Apple does this type of allocation, I have no idea if or when they will. Let's just be clear about that. But if they do, it will lock in that reality for everybody in the world that Bitcoin is here officially as a monetary standard in the same way that .com is just synonymous with our entire life. Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is a features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk Daily Opinion section. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. Hi, everybody. I'm Ben Schiller. This is Opinionated. And joining me today are Anna Bedikova and Danny Nelson, who are both now co-hosts of the show. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Thank you, Ben. Very well. Good, good. So on today, we have a special guest. Uh, it's uh, Nick Batia, who is a adjunct professor at the University of Southern California and the author of a terrific new book, which we've been promoting quite heavily on the site called Laird Money, From Gold and Dollars to Bitcoin and Central Bank Digital Currencies. Welcome to the show, Nick, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. Great. And terrific book. Congratulations on that. So you argue in the book that the world's monetary system is at a tipping point and that our financial system has seen in the crises of 2008 and last year is really at a point of collapse, at a point of revolution. And by layered money, you mean a system in which there is an asset like gold traditionally. And then on top of that, there is a state issued currency. And you argue that Bitcoin is replacing gold's traditional role as a base layer in that monetary system. Uh, and then you look at some of the consequences and implications of that. And you've written two uh, very well received uh, op-eds for, for Coindesk recently, one of which looked at the price of Bitcoin and had a very uh, intriguing headline on it, why $1 million Bitcoin is coming. And then you followed it up with another sort of incendiary piece, well, incendiary to some people, where you argued that asset managers should now be thinking of Bitcoin as a fiduciary responsibility. I, it's not just a good investment. It's actually their responsibility as managers to, to be thinking about including this in their portfolio. So um, we're going to get into all of that. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Question of $1 million Bitcoin. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, I mean, Bitcoin, I mean, it's already at 50,000 or 60,000. How does it go from 50 or 60 grand to uh, $1 million? How, how is that possible, do you think? Well, I always like to separate the price and the, the market cap or you know, what I call in the book, the total market value of Bitcoin. The price can lead to a lot of dramatic headlines, but really in context, the price means nothing without how many coins it's multiplied by to get the total market value of Bitcoin. So right now we're sitting at about a $1 trillion market size of Bitcoin. And I do firmly believe that that could go to 20 trillion in the next few years. And the reason is because when you look at the size of other markets that are traditionally known as wealth storage vehicles, like US treasuries, like real estate across the planet, like the stock market, we get to a number that's well north of several hundred trillion dollars. The market size of the US treasury market itself is $30 trillion. Uh, the U.S. equity market is $100 trillion. 
So when we're talking about maybe a $20 trillion size of Bitcoin, that to me is very realistic as we look to the future and see that Bitcoin is continuing to attract demand for its wealth storage vehicle properties by itself, let alone the properties it has as a currency and as a transaction network that is uh, completely online. And I think you made the statement when Elon Musk and Michael Saylor were making big investments. And you pointed out that at the time, they'd invested a combined amount of $3.5 billion into Bitcoin. And that triggered a reaction or explosion of value uh, of up to $30,000 in price. And you sort of extrapolate that out in the case of maybe Apple investing a similar amount or other companies getting into a similar amount and that sort of juicing a similar sized increase. Do you see that process continuing going forward? Yes, absolutely. Each additional allocation that comes into the market of size and you know now size is going to have to be at least a billion dollars. Pretty soon it's going to be at least $10 billion to uh, garner even any headlines in terms of the size of the allocation. But yes, each one of these allocations, it not only it triggers a immediate price increase, but it has follow-on effects. It reduces the overall floatable supply out there because these large purchases are not done for a quick buck. They're done to secure a piece of digital real estate in this new landscape for the long term uh, in a similar way that large companies or even countries try to annex land that land that they're trying to gain is not a short-term goal. It is a long-term strategic plan. And so, yeah, each one of these big allocations is going to reduce the supply in the market. It is going to create a FOMO. It's going to create an emotion worldwide that says, wow, this new land is very valued by all these very smart people, very advanced corporations. We also need to be taking a look and it, it will trigger buying and the scarcity of Bitcoin then really comes to shine in that type of scenario. I have a couple of follow-ups. There is so many things to unpack. I'm just curious to ask you, Nick, this article of yours about 1 million Bitcoin that might be coming, it does sound a lot, you know, hypey. Do you think that throwing around numbers like that you might be tempting people who are not very tech savvy, who don't know much about Bitcoin to take not so prudent financial actions and spend their last money, you know, take a loan in the bank and so on and so forth and buy Bitcoin and get in financial trouble. You know, that their loans might be due before Bitcoins go into another rally. And I heard people talking on social networks about how they took a loan in a bank and then Bitcoin tank, and now they have all this loan to, to give away, you know, and they, they don't have money. So do you ever think that price predictions like that can be dangerous for people out there who don't know much about Bitcoin? You know, it's a very fair point. I think that what got me into Bitcoin originally was hearing these extreme price predictions. Uh, I do remember that the first type of really uh, huge price prediction that I heard uh, very early on was in this two to $4 million range. And this is when Bitcoin was only hundreds of dollars, right? It was below a thousand at the time. When I heard those price predictions, I went to dig a little deeper because I'm like, if something's going to go from a thousand to 2 million, I probably want to own it and uh, I need to investigate it. From that point on, 
I tried to do the math myself and really, you know, understand. I progressed into my own investment thesis where I thought that, you know, Bitcoin would be going to at least a $10 trillion market cap. So about a $500,000 price. And that was my own target. And I actually put that in my book. But when I started to think about it more and more, I felt that it's actually not bold enough. I need to be a little bit more bold in what I actually believe. What people choose to do with that information is really beyond my control. There's so many people out there that are talking about Bitcoin that are predicting a Bitcoin price of tens of millions of dollars already. They're doing it with very little mathematical evidence, in my opinion. And so I'm trying to bring a new level of analysis and a unique perspective to this. If people choose to borrow and gamble with their money, buy altcoins that are highly speculative and not based in any reality, it's not. I'm not giving financial advice. I'm just a writer now. And so I had a lot of fun with that piece. You know, if people choose to, to gamble with my opinion piece, uh, then I'm not really sure. So you followed the hype once and you don't regret it? Well, it's not that I followed it. It's that I did my own research, right? And that's what I expect of readers as well, that you can't just take one article and go and invest your life savings or leverage. You have to do your own research. I did my own research. So I guess that I expect that of the people that read my pieces. And on the topic of doing your own research, uh, I was fascinated by your math exercise in trying to figure out, you know, what was the market impact that micro strategies and the uh, successive buys and then Tesla's mega buy had? I believe you came out around, I think, $5,000 or so directly attributable movement. If you could walk us through how you think a $10 billion Apple purchase, which is something that you, you kind of toy with in the article, what that might do to people's perception of Bitcoin and therefore the price. Because I imagine that Apple, which is, of course, Apple doing literally anything with Bitcoin, is going to have a much different effect than MicroStrategy, which has been around for 20 years, but no one outside of its you know, core client base thought about them until last August. Yeah, Apple and other big entities like iToy also with the Bank of Japan, for example, these types of massive entities are going to come into the Bitcoin market. We don't know if it's tomorrow or this calendar year or in the next you know, several years. When they do, it does bring about this realization that this is no longer a trend to maybe guess about, but actually something that is locking in. And I like to tell this story because it's a memory that has stayed with me and was part of my Bitcoin investment thesis. In the beginning, I was driving down the freeway as a, you know, as a kid. I think I was less than 10 years old at the time. And I saw a McDonald's.com billboard. And I thought it was the dumbest thing I had ever seen. Why would McDonald's need a website? It made no sense to me. I'm like, but in reality... That was the signal that the internet and dot-com was here forever. And so when Apple does this type of allocation, I have no idea if or when they will. Let's just you know be clear about that. But if they do, it will lock in that reality for everybody in the world that Bitcoin is here officially as a monetary standard in the same way that Dot-com is just synonymous with our entire life. 
Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. So maybe you could just sort of unpack how you see Bitcoin being really integrated into the monetary system. So at the moment, it's still an asset. It's something that we trade on Coinbase or Kraken or wherever, but it's not really part of the sort of infrastructure of money in, in the sense that the dollar is and the Federal Reserve and the rest of it. How does it go from being this kind of thing to being this new thing? Yeah, there are two components there. One is something that I discuss in the book, and I want to start there. Because you mentioned at the beginning when talking about the future of a layered money system, that Bitcoin would be this base asset of the system in a way much like gold was in the past. But it's actually a little bit more specific because I don't believe that central banks and governments will be holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet with the direct issuance of liability money derived directly from that asset, Bitcoin. Rather, I believe that Bitcoin will serve as a base asset and in a price relationship with other assets, it'll serve as the reserve currency in the world. Maybe in a way that gold did around the time when other currencies were floating and gold was sort of the ultimate settlement layer. But it really comes down to, I think, Bitcoin and central bank digital currencies in the future having a liquid market between each other, and then us having transparent foreign exchange prices for all currencies because they're in this new digital realm and they all can be atomically swapped with Bitcoin in a trustless exchange, purely digital currency way, not in an exchange format where we have to wire dollars to an exchange, use those dollars to purchase Bitcoin that are simply Bitcoin deposits on the exchange and then have to withdraw the Bitcoin to our own address and wait for the blockchain for it to settle. That whole process still takes a day or more. But in the future, if central bank digital currencies can be swapped with Bitcoin in a truly digital way, instantly without an exchange in the middle in an atomic swap, that could bring price transparency to all central bank digital currencies in the future. So that's how I view Bitcoin becoming an international settlement mechanism above central bank liabilities in a pure price relationship sort of way, not necessarily in a balance sheet sort of way. But there will be some countries and central banks that will own Bitcoin and maybe even issue a Bitcoin-backed currency, but I don't think that that's the base case. The other is what I call the monetization process through 
the transfer of real assets like real estate and equity. So as we see already today, people are willing to sell their real estate for Bitcoin and people want to use their Bitcoin to buy real estate. That's not the norm, but it is already a real market and exists in many countries around the world, you know, a very small way. That trend is beginning and will only continue and continue to grow into the future, as well as the exchange of Bitcoin for equity and company, whether in uh, private or public markets. So that is something that people are willing to now sell their shares in a company for Bitcoin, purchase shares in companies with Bitcoin. That process will also continue to grow. That is the monetization event in terms of Bitcoin becoming a transactional money where people want to use it on both sides of the transaction. They want to trade land for Bitcoin, Bitcoin for land, Bitcoin for equity, equity for Bitcoin. And that will bring Bitcoin into the center of the monetary system as a settlement tool. And so those two, central bank, digital currency, atomic swaps, and real estate and equity Bitcoin transactions will bring about a Bitcoin-centric monetary future. But in order for, for that to come about, we would need a situation where Bitcoin is far less volatile, right? Uh, up or down, you need to, if you're going to have Bitcoin being the, uh, the unit of account and the way that we're denominating goods and services, you can't afford, or at least merchants and small-time retailers, they can't afford to have something that's going all over the place in value. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to think out their own books. So I respectfully completely disagree with that. I think that the volatility poke at Bitcoin in terms of it not going to be used as a settlement is completely wrong. It already is. And it's for two reasons. One, the people that want to denominate in Bitcoin don't care about the price. They just want more Bitcoin. And so that's part of why people are willing to sell X for Bitcoin or Y for Bitcoin, because they just want Bitcoin. That's their denomination. That is their mental unit of account. So as long as they're increasing their Bitcoin balance, they're happy. The other side is that tools now exist for hedging in which any company or country or person that doesn't want the price exposure of Bitcoin in their home currency has the tools to do a hedging you know, exchange on the futures market or anything like that, where they can sell the price short against uh, their transaction and lock in their dollar price or their local currency price. So those types of tools exist. You know, I worked for OpenNode for a little bit and, you know, they have a, an instant exchange hedging tool. You know, when we're pitching OpenNode's platform to companies, we can say, hey, if you don't want any Bitcoin price volatility, we can completely remove that. We can remove that headache from you do an instant exchange uh, into dollars and you'll get your dollars that, you know, within 24 hours in your account and no headaches whatsoever. So uh, I think that that market will continue to exist and services like OpenNode will continue to grow. I actually want to question a couple of things that you mentioned. First is, you know, some people just want Bitcoin and then don't care that much about the dollar price, if I take correctly what you're saying. They just want Bitcoin because they think it's such a valuable asset. But don't these people just want Bitcoin because they believe that it will continue to grow and its purchase power will not diminish, but grow. So they are fine with just having Bitcoin and not thinking about it as long as the eternal growth of Bitcoin is a prerequisite. And just another thing, coming back to volatility, 
Do you think that if we have even more professional financial market players, even more corporation coming into Bitcoin, it actually might make it weaker in a sense of volatility because it will be more vulnerable to large sell-offs? When we say that the corporation want Bitcoin as a long-term asset, are we so sure? We just saw Tesla selling a big batch of Bitcoins recently. Like, are we so sure those corporations wouldn't be selling off, like, you know, dumping on the market one day, and that will hurt Bitcoin price, and that will hurt the faith of people in Bitcoin, and so on and so forth. You know, like it happened in March 2020, when we saw that Bitcoin is not that uncorrelated an asset anymore as it used to be, you know, when the financial crisis hits, Bitcoin plunged together with other assets. Yeah, I think, again, it comes back to my idea that I think that the volatility of Bitcoin is truly a remarkable feature and in no way a detriment. It gives me personally a lot of confidence that the price is, while extremely volatile, is expressing exactly the emotion in the market at any given time. So if corporations decide to buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and then sell a hundred million as a liquidity exercise and, you know, the price of Bitcoin dumps during that time, it's just an expression of a truly free market. And as somebody that has worked in the traditional markets, I mean, I can safely say that prices don't follow a very natural path in the traditional markets relative to Bitcoin. They're smoothed. Because there are huge market players, including central banks and governments that have positions in the market, like in the foreign exchange market, the dollar euro exchange rate is very managed between the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank. Bitcoin's price is not managed in any way. It is completely the Wild West. That is why it's so volatile. That is why the volatility won't slow down. I don't agree that the volatility will come down as Bitcoin grows, it's going to stay very volatile because it is a free expression and it's so emotional. There's no center price of Bitcoin. That's also something so important to remember. There is no one price of Bitcoin. There are transactions on different exchanges all around the world in different currencies at any time. So all of those prices are being arbitraged by market players throughout time. And so the volatility is, to me, one of the most incredible observations from a market's perspective as someone who you know, has lived and breathed markets uh, my entire life. Wait, but if you believe that the volatility is not going to go away, you know, even as Bitcoin grows, that it will be the same fun roller coaster all the time incentivizing the asset managers to include Bitcoin in their portfolio, you're basically incentivizing them to gamble with their clients' money because, you know, Bitcoin's going to go up and down. You can't really predict when it does. And, you know, you have all your clients' money and you're like, yeah, let's go, you know, let's party. Let's, let's play that volatility game. Yeah. So, I mean, I do believe that we are in a global re-monetization event and a re-denomination event. I wrote a book to explain that I think we are in a once in a 2000 year transition into a new monetary future. And that monetary future is Bitcoin centric. So while Bitcoin volatility in your local currency might seem extreme, 
to me, it's the process in which we move to a Bitcoin denomination in which people aren't thinking in terms of the price in their local currencies anymore, but they're just thinking in terms of Bitcoin. That process won't play out over the next few years. It'll play out over the next couple decades. And on the way to that process, if you're an asset manager that is mandated with growth, you should be investing in Bitcoin to participate in that growth over the long term, not as a short-term investment. And when investment managers give their pitch to their clients, prospective clients, and they say, how are we you know, going to invest for you? We are going to identify things that we believe have a five to 10-year growth horizon. This is the you know, investment thesis that we're taking. And this is the holding period that we expect to get in. Like when venture capitalists uh, you know, do their first startups, they're hoping it goes to a series E, F, G, and that it goes IPO. And that process can take 10 years. And they're looking to literally invest $5 million to get a billion or $10 billion down the road in a venture capital setting. And so when you look at Bitcoin and you identify that it might actually be a global re-denomination over the next 20 years, and you're not allocating at least a tiny portion of your client's capital to Bitcoin, you're missing something very earth-shattering that's happening in front of our eyes. Bitcoin has already gone from zero to a trillion dollars. It's already the size you know, practically of Amazon, which has this 25-year incredible history of growth and has changed the world as we know it. And so, you know, it's time to recognize Bitcoin for what it is. And I'm not encouraging people to speculate. Rather, they need to understand monetary history. So you suggest that any capital becomes a little bit venture capital? Well, I'm not suggesting that fixed income managers that are mandated with uh, safe investment portfolios for their clients buy Bitcoin. That would be in violation of their fiduciary duty. And I do make that point in the article. I do say growth managers, not fixed income, return 2%, no capital loss. I worked in that industry, right? My former company shouldn't be allocating to Bitcoin for their clients if their mandate is a safe return of capital. But if you're invested in, in tech stocks, for example, and you're not starting to think about Bitcoin itself, not even necessarily buying Bitcoin on Kraken, but owning maybe a little bit more of Tesla or going long Coinbase or doing something that is Bitcoin-centric, PayPal, Square, all these companies that are making investments into Bitcoin. If you're not thinking in those terms, the truth is you're going to underperform your peers. <laughs> you know, We always say in our industry, if you underperform for too long, you get fired. That's it. There are too many investment managers out there. So it is their fiduciary duty as growth managers to be looking at Bitcoin. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that matter with regards to the JP Morgan news. JP Morgan is, of course, going to be offering uh, certain private wealth clients um, an actively managed Bitcoin fund. And what stands out to me the most there is not only that, you know, uh, Jamie Dimon's JP Morgan is finally warming up in just the smallest way to Bitcoin but that it's an actively managed fund. Now, we don't know what the investment strategy is going to be, but presumably it will be more complex than buy and hold, which would mean that it has a fundamentally different philosophy than the long-term five-year view that you have. I mean, of course, we don't know what the strategy would be, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, JP Morgan's move fits into all this. 
Yeah. So I want to come back to the word denomination. I focus on this in the book. The Latin root of the word denomination is nomen. It means name. So denomination is what we name our wealth. And when I say that people want more Bitcoin, they have renamed their savings and their earnings and their wealth and their labor. They've renamed it in Bitcoin because, as Anna said, they believe in the long-term growth of it. They believe that in you know it, over at least a five-year time horizon, because if you look at Bitcoin over two-year time horizons, you can lose a ton of money in your home currency, right? But over five-year time horizons, every time it's worked out thus far. So people are renaming their currency into Bitcoin, and those are the buy and hold people. The JP Morgan clients are actually not interested in renaming their wealth. They still want more dollars. And in terms of getting more dollars, there is a way to outperform the price of Bitcoin, and that is to trade it if you can trade it well. So you try to time the market. You try to use your trading expertise to buy low and sell high or buy a position and then hedge, meaning go short when the price gets too high or get extra leverage long when the price goes too low. That's called trading. So an actively managed strategy is like, we're going to try to return more dollars to you by trading than if we could just be long Bitcoin. So it's a dollar denomination strategy. And there's nothing wrong with that because people want to use Bitcoin to get more dollars too. There's not just re-denomination people. The re-denomination crowd is a large portion of this crowd. The make money crowd is a large portion of this crowd. I don't know how much of each. There are products on both sides. So JP Morgan is one product and buy and hold is a different strategy. Just to put a bit of fly in the ointment here, uh, I mean, a lot of people think that the rise of Bitcoin this year will sort of presage a new wave of regulatory activity that governments now have a sort of responsibility or see the responsibility to act more aggressively against uh, Bitcoin and its sort of uh, class of asset around it. Um, how do you see that affecting your thesis? And secondarily, what about CBDCs? I mean, don't central banks have an incentive to now compete with Bitcoin in, in a way that might injure its, uh, its story long term? So from a regulatory standpoint, I like to separate the United States and uh, other countries. Right now, the United States is still the dominant regulatory regime in the financial landscape. And what happens in the United States really matters. So I'd like to focus there. In the United States, different components, different aspects of the government have embraced Bitcoin as a legal way to transact or a legal thing to own. It's treated as property at the IRS. The Treasury Department and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency have recognized that Bitcoin can be used in transactions between banks as long as banking laws are followed. So as far as its use and the legality to own it, Bitcoin is here to stay in the United States officially 100%. That is my opinion. And into the far future, Bitcoin is legal here in the United States. The potential for the IRS and the government to come in with more strict capital gains tax requirements or even a surcharge on capital gains for, from you know Bitcoin trading standpoint, that is possible. I do believe that at the very least, a more active capture of capital gains for Bitcoiners will be prevalent in the United States. The government wants their share of the profit. And if Americans have been long, the government should get some of that money in from their perspective. So they'll come after Bitcoin capital gains in a way. 
Do I feel that that affects the investment thesis for Bitcoin or even the price? Not at all. People will be long Bitcoin here in the United States and other countries. Regulatory arbitrage and jurisdictional arbitrage will drive Bitcoin holders maybe out of the United States altogether to avoid capital gains tax. That sort of regulatory arbitrage will always exist. Countries will look at the United States, and if they happen to even flirt with capital gains, surcharge taxes on Bitcoin holders, other countries will slash their Bitcoin capital gains tax to zero. And you will see a movement around the world where we really are in this new post-pandemic Zoom forward, digital forward world where people are, you know, going to just move. And I do believe that that won't have any uh, impact on the price. Now, outside of the United States, other countries will move to ban Bitcoin usage or ownership because they believe it threatens their ability to operate a local currency and even conduct an economy. Those scared smaller countries will try to do that. But again, regulatory arbitrage will drive Bitcoiners out of those nations and into nations that are more friendly. So the idea that Bitcoin is digital and very transitory in its physicality are huge advantages to Bitcoin. Now, the central bank digital currency, the second part of your question, central bank digital currency is just another central bank liability. In my opinion, it does nothing to compete with Bitcoin because today people aren't using Bitcoin because it's the incredible transactional currency that they can use everywhere. They use Venmo for that here in the United States. You know, they use the dollar, they use digital dollars issued by private companies. So they'll just start using digital dollars issued by the central bank instead of digital dollars issued by their uh, commercial bank or their online payment provider like PayPal or Venmo. And so Bitcoin does not attract demand today because it's digital currency and really easy to use. It attracts demand because we are in a re-denomination event where people prefer a neutral, non-government issued currency. And so the introduction of CBDC it doesn't actually do anything to prevent the adoption of Bitcoin. It only accelerates it as we move more into a digital currency future in which people recognize that they don't actually have to only hold one currency. They can hold two on their smartphone and both as bearer assets. One is Bitcoin, one is their central bank digital currency. The central bank digital currency they can use to collect benefits from their government pay taxes, transact in their home country. And for their Bitcoin wallet, they can use Bitcoin as their international currency, as their hedge to their government. I always like to remind people that in the United States, we're totally spoiled by a currency that you know probably won't disappear tomorrow. But that's a luxury that others don't have in Venezuela, for example. So people all around the world now hold Bitcoin as an alternative to their home currency that process will only accelerate with central bank digital currencies. Just to push back on that, I mean, if you're a central banker and you earn half a million dollars a year and your job is predicated on the idea that governments or the state has control over the monetary system, why would you in this zero-sum game give up power and your own salary ultimately to a private currency that you can't control? And and why would you make it easier in this future digital currency world, which you were describing earlier, for people to sort of automatically 
swap in and out of this system, private, public? Uh, wouldn't you want to make it sort of more difficult? Have you saw it as a sort of a existential threat to your well-being and your your whole way of life? Absolutely. So all it's going to take, Ben, is for the USA, Germany, Switzerland, and Singapore and Australia to do it. And then it's over. It doesn't matter what African or Latin American nations, Bitcoin is here to stay. They might lose a currency altogether. They might have to go into a dollar denomination just to avoid the price volatility of Bitcoin affecting their economy. I do believe that smaller countries will cease to have uh, local currencies over the longer term as Bitcoin and central bank digital currencies just completely shake up the landscape. So yeah, smaller, weaker currencies will die and those countries will do everything that they can to maybe stop that, ban Bitcoin. And yes, all that will happen. But with the US leading the way, and frankly, they are, with Switzerland and Singapore both very openly owning this idea that Bitcoin is here to stay, and we're going to heavily integrate a regulatory environment with Bitcoin and local currency, Bitcoin is here. And you are correct that the central bankers of smaller nations are going to freak out at this idea that Bitcoin is going to obsolete what they're doing and make it very challenging for them to operate monetary policy within their country. But Bitcoin is the grand disruptor. And so for me to even try to predict how that is going to unfold, it's very, very difficult. I just like to put out the ideas that CBDCs are here, the West is embracing Bitcoin as a legal thing. So Bitcoin is here as a global neutral currency. Smaller countries with corrupt governments or uh, governments that are just very fragile, economies that are very weak, will succumb to this new environment and currencies will go away. Well, I for one doubt that any government will ever surrender their national currency because it's a political matter. No matter how bad your currency is doing, like as long as you hold on to the power, especially if you're a corrupt and inefficient ruler, you know, you're going to cling to having your currency. Maybe it will be an extremely badly functioning centralized CBDC but you're not giving that away. So I highly doubt that a Bitcoin going to elbow out e even some of the national currencies. But Anna, uh, Zimbabwe's currency disappeared uh, last decade and they succumbed to the death of their own currency. So it's not a decision that the country makes. It's just a death of the currency by the market. And they use dollars in Zimbabwe now because of that. And so I do feel that that process will repeat into the future and Bitcoin will play a role in some of those collapses in the future. The country will never choose to give up their currency, but the market can deem it dead and the people of that country can also deem it dead. That's what's happening in Venezuela right now as well. You know, one of the stories that, uh, it's kind of my favorite story on this topic. I, I honestly agree with that. I'm very skeptical that Bitcoin can eat world currencies or local currencies. However, the politicians in some areas would disagree with me. A couple months ago in Nigeria, the topic of uh, regulating crypto exchanges came up through a central bank report. And in response, a senator in Nigeria, he basically said, we can't afford to regulate crypto out of existence. And here's the quote, uh, Bitcoin has made our currency almost useless or valueless. I mean, I, I don't think that Bitcoin is on the 
precipice of completely ousting Nigeria's currency, but it does seem that the uh, power brokers in certain states are really thinking about the potential that Bitcoin could offer a more viable alternative. I don't know if that really will come about so that everyone will be using Bitcoin, but it's at the very least on their minds, which is something I never would have guessed. Yes, uh, Nigerians are using Bitcoin to get around the instability of their own currency. And so, again, it's a glide path. It's not a switch. The glide path suggests that an increasing amount of Nigerians are using Bitcoin as their home currency. Great point. I'm just curious about uh, how you see the other uh, prominent cryptocurrencies. I mean, because obviously you base your book around Bitcoin, but aren't there also some other very good projects out there with a lot of big fan bases, big followerships? I mean, like Ethereum or even Dogecoin. I mean, why shouldn't those also play this sort of similar role that you talk about with Bitcoin? Yeah, they don't play a similar role as Bitcoin, but they are in that same arena of assets that have value because of a price relationship with Bitcoin. And so the fact that you can trade alternative cryptocurrencies with Bitcoin in this uh, basically essentially trustless environment, we know that most of them happen on exchanges in a trusted environment, but that's not the point. The point is that they're digital currencies and they have a price relationship. There is a market for currencies that aren't called Bitcoin. I'm not personally long any of them, nor have I done a ton of research. I can't speak to any project. But what I can say is that Ethereum has a market value that's over $200 billion. The market is assigning Ethereum a price. I'm not one to say that Ethereum has a market value that is undeserved. The price is the truth. And so Ethereum has a price in terms of Bitcoin. It has a price in terms of dollars. It is achieving market value versus Bitcoin, achieving market value versus dollars. And it is something that people demand clearly based on what we're seeing in the market. There are like a lot of other cryptocurrencies that have had trouble versus Bitcoin over the longer term. And so, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that are more fleeting out there. But for me to say that there's only Bitcoin and nothing else, that's also irresponsible. The market is assigning value. So look at the price. Look at five-year time horizons. Those will tell you what you need to know. I love Bitcoin because over five-year time horizon, it's never going down. So that shows me that it's something that is uh, in a very long-term growth cycle. In my field, we like to say the trend persists. But you don't see these alternative currencies playing the same role as Bitcoin in this sort of base layer of this new system? Not at all. That comes down to the, the energy, the computational energy that goes into securing this Bitcoin network. I firmly am one of those people that believe that the mining tidal wave of energy that exists around the world is the fundamental value of Bitcoin and that the mining network of Bitcoin, the strength of the computational energy uh, that secures the network around the world is the value. That is where the value comes from. That is what people demand in Bitcoin. They demand a currency that cannot be manipulated by any one entity, by any issuer. It is decentralized neutral money, and uh, it is alone in that league. If we can take a step back and, you know, talk a little bit beyond the price and the market value of Bitcoin, you know, like in your picture of the future, there is this, you know, hyper Bitcoinized world when Bitcoin is actually, you know, ruling the money. Bitcoin is ruling the world capital and the monetary policy. 
Some people, including hardcore Bitcoiners, have an opposite view that Bitcoin will and should stay, you know, the money of marginalized, the, the money of outlawed, the money of the rogue that actually doesn't care about mass adoption. It's the money of those who need it as it is. And speaking about ethos of Bitcoin, when big players, when mainstream traditional professional financial players are coming into Bitcoin, they don't just bring in their money, they also bring their ethos and their narratives into Bitcoin. And already we hear things that, you know, some funds say they would only buy Bitcoins that were ecologically mined. And some miners would say that they wouldn't process the transactions from sanctioned jurisdictions. I'm curious to hear what you think, but in my view, it's kind of, you know, goes totally against the ethos of Bitcoin as we know it. So do you think that this big pocket mainstream financial adoption of Bitcoin might change the narrative and the ethos of Bitcoin in a way that it's uncensorable, borderless money to a detriment of Bitcoin? No, because if people want to buy Bitcoin that's mined ecologically, they can trace that and research their own mining process and do that. You know, on the other side, if a miner doesn't want to process transactions, somebody else will win that block or, you know, they will struggle to win blocks because they'll be limited by the number of transactions they can include in, in their block. So Bitcoin is still a free market. And if people choose to participate in a corner of the Bitcoin market, that is their choice to do so and doesn't really affect the network in general. Now, I don't actually believe that we're in, going into this hyper-Bitcoinization future where everybody's using Bitcoin all the time. My vision is not that. I still think that people will be using their local currencies. That's why I think FedCoin is coming because FedCoin is going to be around for a long time and I'm going to be using it. I plan on living in the United States. So I'm going to be using FedCoin to, at the very minimum, pay my taxes, pretty likely to receive payment for my contracting services from major financial institutions that I currently contract for. Like they're going to pay me in FedCoin. They're not going to pay me in Bitcoin. So I'm going to be paid in FedCoin. I'm going to have to, you know, go to restaurants and pay in FedCoin and, you know, pay my taxes in FedCoin too. So I think that the dollar is not going away. We're not in this uh, hyper Bitcoinization future, but we are in a future in which Bitcoin is a dominant neutral asset that people kind of like stocks where Almost everybody in the United States over the age of 40 has some stocks. Everybody owns stocks. So it's a wealth storage vehicle for them that they'd rather own stocks because it's interest in future ingenuity and labor. It's not any interest in a unit of account that a government issues, right? We don't own stocks because they're priced in dollars. We own stocks because you get uh, revenue from the future. It doesn't matter what unit the revenue is in. You have earning power because you own a company. You own interest in a company. So Bitcoin is a type of property. It's unique and it's not going to replace the dollar or other local currencies anytime soon. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was really terrific. And uh, if you haven't checked out his book, uh, Laird Money, we'd highly recommend that. It's uh, really uh, a terrific look at the future. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Danny. And thank you to Michelle Musso for producing this show. My name is Ben Schiller, and we'll see you next time. 
You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. This episode featured Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson, host Ben Schiller, and guest Nick Biata. Today's show has been produced and announced by Michelle Musso. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.